0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget you can find out more about what we do all the time on officehours.global. As every day, our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Second hour, we typically do a deeper dive into a topic, and today I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be discussing conducting on-camera interviews one of the most popular content creation strategies. So uh, that is our second hour. The first hour, we're going to deal with your questions. And don't forget, you can ask as many questions as you like through the Makana interface in the back, and we encourage you to do so. Uh, This show is driven by what you want to talk about, and we spend the most time on the highest rated questions, and you are the raters. So when you see those questions in the interface, Make sure you vote on the ones you want to see discussed most at length, and we'll dive into those. So,
1: Alex, what have we got today? Our first question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, what is the difference uh, between an electronic camera shutter and global shutter? Uh, which is better and why? Alex, you want to handle this? It's it's really an electric a rolling shutter or a rolling shutter or a global shutter are both electronic shutters. So a global shutter is part of that assembly. Um, and, uh, and so it, you when you have an, ele- what you had before was a mechanical shutter, which is something that was actually turning, that would that would um, let you get from frame to frame, otherwise, you'd see the frame moving. <laughs> so, so you had to, there has to be some time when the frame isn't uh, opened, or when the shutter wasn't open. So there was a shutter. And when we move the frame, uh we had to have some time it was closed and so uh typically it was closed half the time to give the give it now in in military ones in world war 2 you'll notice they're a little bit more study, uh, stuttery because three quarters of the time it was closed to give it more time to get from one frame to the next between those frames. So that shutter was what controlled it. Now we don't, we're not limited by that now. We can have an electronic shutter. It could stay open the whole time. And it can actually go from frame to frame to frame without, it's never moving the frame. So you never see that there, that that um, uh, uh, blur that would happen that's there. So they have an electronic shutter. Now there's two different ways of doing that. That's a rolling shutter, which is that it charges the entire sensor at, at one time, which is much harder to do and much more expensive to execute, um, or a rolling shutter where it scans the whole thing down as fast as it can throughout that frame. The problem with the rolling shutter is that if your camera is shaking a lot, everything will wiggle <laughs> because it didn't get to that part of the frame before it moved. Uh, so um, so rolling shutters, which is a, a lot of cameras out there, a lot of consumer cameras, the Blackmagic cameras, those are all rolling shutters. Uh, bigger film cameras like Aries and a couple other ones that will have a what's called a global shutter and that's what you're looking for if you're, if you're going to deal with a lot of camera movement. The rolling shutter is fine for 90% of the work that you would do. Not fine for the other 10. <laughs> so, and, and all you have to do to see that is take your iPhone, your iPhone's a rolling shutter, take it, just just take it in your car and just stick it out the window and just let it go like this. <laughs> Capture some footage and you'll see this wavy thing that's going on, and that's your rolling shutter. But it's not a matter of electronic shutter. Both a rolling shutter and a global shutter are electronic shutters. They're not. They, there's no physical piece moving in there. Um, but uh, but the global shutter is one where it's grabbing the entire frame at one time.
0: I've heard the term jello effect applied. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think
1: the technical term for it is jello vision. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's how you can tell. But good explanation. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Nick Batt in the UK. And Nick asks, what is the basic minimum black magic camera to add to an ATEM HDMI to get the cam control and other benefits uh, on a budget?
0: Alex, you want know, to deal with this one too?
1: Yeah, I think that the 4K or even the the mini the micro cinema is probably the least expensive version that has an HDMI, but I don't know. I think you have to have SDI to actually control it. I don't think it'll control through the HDMI. The HDMI is simple output. So the, I think the least expensive one is the Blackmagic 4K um, as far as an HDMI control back to the camera. Remember, you can use any Blackmagic SDI camera by having a bidirectional converter from HDMI to SDI. And that'll have two SDIs that would go into that Blackmagic camera with SDI. And so if you get something used, you could do that. Uh, almost every Blackmagic camera made in the, probably the last... Five or six years are all able to be uh, driven from the A10 Mini. Um, a lot of us have. I'm on a 6K right now. Uh, a lot of us have 4Ks and 6Ks. Um, they're probably the easiest ones to control uh, uh, as far as that, and probably the least expensive in the group that you're looking for.
0: Let's move on to the next question.
1: Our next question is from Andy Kokendorfer, and in Vieira, Florida, and Andy asks. Is there a Sony consumer camera that will output rec 2020 via HDMI? I would like to experiment with Rec 2020, uh, but my Sony A6500 is limited to rec 709.
0: Sony is notorious for having extraordinarily low light product uh, performance, but this is uh, Rec 2020, which is high dynamic range that you're looking for. Uh, I'm not sure if Rec 2020 comes out HDMI. I might be wrong about that, but I think the I'm not sure if the HDMI standard as it currently exists can handle that extra luminance bandwidth it might be able to and i might be wrong i'm not a sony guy so i don't have a lot of experience with that uh and i don't know the class of the a6500 camera Uh, generally speaking things like rec 2020 doesn't hit the consumer side of cameras really early it's one of those things that starts out on professional cameras and then kind of works its way down in the consumer areas alex do you have additional thoughts
1: yeah, I mean if you want to experiment with it, and you want to capture it. Um it, it, capturing it live can be a little tricky, but if you want to experiment with this, what you need is a LUT that's going to convert your footage to a certain curve. Uh if you have a 10 bit and I don't know, I have a I have this little FX30 here and I, and I just it just arrived yesterday. <laughs> so this little guy here. So I'll be doing some tests uh you know with this, but uh basically the thing is if you have if you have a 10 bit output and you apply a a curve whether it's an HLG curve or a uh, PQ curve, that can be stretched back out into uh, HDR so um, and, and into that that REC 2020 color space. So, what you want to look at there is uh, applying the right LUT to it and then having it going out of the HDMI. The HDMI should be able to handle 10-bit. It doesn't matter or it doesn't matter as much. Um, it It is, uh, you know, it's just the basic PQ curve without all of the trims uh, that you could apply to it as a LUT or an HLG um, LUT. And then th- that would get it out there. It's not truly, it's not gonna be tagged that way. But you could take that information as long as you haven't lost it uh, out out of the camera, and then um, uh, apply another lot to get it to where you're what you're trying to do. And Felipe. log, oh, of course, log would would do it as well.
2: Yeah. Felipe, yeah, no, I was just thoughts? wondering here, Yeah, I was just wondering here, for example, my Sony a one outputs 10 bit 422. And it outputs HLG as well, which is rec 2020.
1: Okay, so, so there is great. a Sony. Pathway. So that's a Sony camera. What and how much is, does that cost?
2: <laughs> that's the one that's six and a half thousand.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <To my laughs> so, so yeah, when generally you get the these six,
1: features. <laughs> once you get above five thousand dollars, you can you can and which, which which camera is that again? Sorry.
2: That's the A1.
1: Oh, the A1, yeah. Fifty
2: megapixel, eight K recording up to thirty frames.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to be testing what I can do with this. This is an FX30 um, that that I'm going to be playing with uh, in in the next little bit of time. So uh, so we'll take a look at that. Um, I, as soon as you start getting into those those the FX3, FX6, um, the A1, those those should all be able to do um, an, at least an HLG. An HLG is kind of like. HDR light. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, it's a lot easier to go through pipelines and, and so on and so forth. So, but, but you should make it work. And again, if you capture in log from any of these cameras, uh, you're going to be able to correct that into a rec 2020 space. So, you know, that's going to capture that information because what's happening is the, when you do a log, it's when you think about the, if you think about the highlights, you know, here and, um, you, the log is going to, you know, protect like this it's going to protect all those highlights there in 8 bit this would all fall apart but when it gets you know when you actually um when it gets stretched back out when you when you you're pulling all these highlights that were there back up you know into that into that area for the it's this is a very simplified curve but you're able to pull that back up and get all that highlights that were protected by this kind of soft log curve that you have there so it's, it it um you should be able to capture log and then re stretch it and we do that a lot I mean, log is the easiest way to capture from a camera um, and then stretch it back out into any HDR format that you want to, from HLG all the way up to vision.
0: Andy, I don't know if it's out there right now, but the hope is for the future pretty strong because as they increase the power of the chips they're putting in all these cameras, that's part of, you know, we've seen this evolution from the days of the original uh, DSLRs that had digit chips and things like that that could handle video frame rates. Those chips have gotten more and more and more powerful. We're seeing more and more processing on board on the camera. That bodes well for a future where things like HLG and these things are going to be processed by even the low-end cameras. I'm not sure it's there entirely yet, but keep your fingers crossed and keep looking around and make sure that that's one of the features you look for. Let's go on to the next question.
1: Next question is from uh, Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. And Guy asks, what are you most excited to see at the NAB 2023 conference?
0: And the answer, all of our friends, is a good answer. But John Fredo, what are you looking for?
3: You just stole my punchline, Bill. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I was off I'm, the cuff. I'm, ex- I'm excited to see Guy, <laughs> and I'm excited to see Felipe and Alex and Chris Fedwick and the whole. We got a big gang coming, so it's going to be exciting to see everyone.
0: You know, I've said forever and ever, and I, before Alex makes his longer comment, uh, that in the beginning you think uh, NAB or these conferences are about seeing things. And then you immediately start understanding it's not about seeing things. It's about meeting people and forming relationships with people. That's really what it's all about, Alex.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty epic gathering. (laughs) So so I think that I'm pretty excited to see everybody uh, there. I think we're going to have a lot of fun uh, there. We're going to do a lot of shooting. Um, And so it's what's fun about it, the... For me the easiest way to socialize and everybody has their own way of doing it but is to do things with people so um, so going there and covering the event is just a fun way to get to know everybody that we haven't seen in person before so I, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun there I think we're gonna shoot some good interesting things and so're we're really we're looking, looking forward to it I'm you know gonna keep on tracking cameras uh you know where black magic's going um you know I think that sony I think is really um hitting all all on all cylinders when it comes to their cameras and so I'm really interested to see what they do there see what Ross comes up with um and then and then a lot of times it's wandering through and just looking for lots of little things that fix things that you didn't even know needed to be fixed. (laughs) That's that's the real thing with NAB is you'll see things and they, they built a tool for something you didn't even know was a problem. And, uh, and, and, and so, um, and and there'll be a lot of learning, learning there. Uh, We are going to put out uh, an epic amount of shorts and videos as well as doing live streams from there. So uh, stay tuned.
0: Yeah, I'm feeling of two minds. I, Alex and I talked, and I've decided to stay here
1: and kind of form we're, a. little... We're very grateful that Bill's willing <laughs> to take one for the team because we needed somebody. I was like, we're going to be gone. We need someone to helm this. It's going to be very complicated. We need, we need you, Bill. We need you and Sandy. But every
0: time I think I'm not going, and I've been there 30 years, I'm <laughs> not going. But I, so I'm counting on each and every one of you who are on the field team to bring the experience back to me, so I can.
1: <laughs> and if, well, your if, job if, is to keep on sending requests. You know, we have to think of some way to do requests. I think that that's. Like we're going to cover a lot of things, but we should figure out a way that people can put in requests. Like we really want to see this booth. We really maybe that's a makana on its own, where it's just people just requesting things that they'd like us to go see. Um, because uh, what I do a lot of times, I have to admit, I get up in the morning and they they have this big paper that comes out, and and you can you get it in your hotel if you bought it with the if you bought the hotel room through NAB, you get this little thing outside your hotel room. Otherwise, you get it. Uh, you can just go to the NAB to get it and what's cool is you go through and you see what all the ads are and they tell you what all the new stuff is. And so, by the way, it's probably the most valuable advertising space in NEB is that that newspaper because you open it up, I open it up and I just circle things and I circle this is in uh, booth this and this and this. And so we'll probably do that every morning <laughs> and, and figure out what we're what we're gonna go see. So, but, but we should find some requests. You know, it'd be great.
0: Yeah, there's also, I should note, an NAB app. So download the app. Particularly, I, I actually used to just take my phone, but I started taking an iPad that was a little bit bigger because the maps to the booth and things like that exist in their electronic app as well. So you can often plan, like, who's next to me, zoom in a little bit on the area and get a bird's eye view that way. So that's often a tool that is useful. All right. We're looking forward to our NAB coverage. It starts on, what is it, April 16th? Uh, it's I think April 16th, yeah. Yeah. So we'll be comprehensive coverage we'll be talking about it the week before covering it live on the scene and then having a lot of discussions about it afterwards those days of the actual show plus i would imagine for days to come so
1: right here on office hours
0: let's go to the next question
1: next question is from andy kokendurfer in Vieira, florida and andy asks how do you socialize an upcoming virtual event uh, virtual conference to maximize the number of attendees david paskin
4: so if I'm understanding the question correctly, a presence, um, when I go to uh, sage events, they send me cool water bottles and stuff. And at zoomtopia, this is one of my favorites. I got a little whale that I got to build and put together myself and it took me all day, but, um, these things are like this is cute. This is fun stuff. It it takes a virtual mm-hmm. event, a digital event, and it makes it feel a little more a little more real. There's a word for that in the industry
0: swag. We're always looking for the cool swag from the conferences. And that one's
1: brilliant that that yeah engage with it oh god wait it just broke hold on (laughs) Uh, google google was notorious for sending out those things and 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 i got because i was working on all these google events i I got i got a lot i had a stack of them and they just drove me crazy because it was like oh this is gonna take way too long for me to put this together i can't i can't i can't expend the time that's necessary to put this little this little thing together it looks simple but i knew it was going to be complicated um, you know, the the thing that I would say is that building a community around what you want the conference to be is the really the key to the operation. So uh, what you want to do is think about lots of small events. Um, a lot of times what we think about is how do I do my event? But it's really how do I create you know, something that's going to gather people so that I know where they are and get, you know, are they going to show up? So one of the things you want to think about is if you have, you know, these, what we would consider tent poles, this is, this is your big event. It might happen once a year. It might happen somewhere else. And what you want to think about is what are the, what are the little events that you can put in here that are going to, tie them together and tie that community together. And if you can do something like Discord, if you can do something like uh, you know, bringing people in, allowing them to start having these conversations potentially every day, you don't have to do an everyday show like we do, but you can have people able to have small things, but maybe once a week, once a month before your event, you have group sessions. And think about the more I see multi-track and and i, I, I I've said this before, once I saw once I saw a single track being Ted, I never wanted to see a multi-track event again. Like I just, you know, I hate multi-tracks. And so if you're doing a conference, think about taking all those tracks and putting them before and after the conference, specifically before the conference. So take the tracks with all the smaller things. So think of, let's say you have six tracks. Think of the best talk from each one of those tracks that's what's going to be in the conference. <laughs> you know. And so then, and then all the other ones that build up towards that are in weekly or daily or monthly things that happen before that. So people can have those conversations and and you give people the opportunity to really spend time on it. But it means that everybody can go to all the sessions if they wanted to. Nothing's overlapped. You don't have any FOMO. You can just simply cover that stuff. And so, you know, I think that where we're going and a lot of people are thinking about this at the largest companies I had, when I was at SVV talking about this, People came up to me afterwards, as soon as I said that, and they were like, oh, we're all trying to figure this out. And which is a conference, the next generation of conferences will probably be two or three months long and they will culminate at the end or two thirds into it with a physical event. You know, and that physical event may be global, you know, digital first event that happens both physically and all over the world at the same time. But, and that will create the energy that you want but you're going to have a lot of other discussions. And then there's it's so much more powerful than what we've been doing. We're living in a tiny little box that was created because we were limited by time and space.
0: Words of wisdom. Uh, not to go back, but swag from things. My favorite swag. piece of swag. Little teeny <laughs> tiny Adirondack <laughs> chair that has the client's oh, name on so it. So and it's a remember. phone
1: holder. So oh when your gosh. phone
0: gets overheated, you can give it a little rest. But it made a little pile of sand
1: on your desk. I will say, if you're going to do swag, and and I think that I think Blue does it really well because he figures out how to do it. The problem is that doesn't bring more people in. That just makes everybody really happy. It's a surprise and delight moment for the people who showed up. Now, when you see another one from Blue, you know what to expect, and so that I think that that helps down the road uh, for those th- those kinds of things. I will say that you know, I so I watch a lot of what Blue does there. Um, the I, I used to it used to be my job to send swag out, like to design the swag for some for Sony Music for for my my region, and the and and. It was a lot of fun and you can get a lot of things done. My most popular swag was there was a band called Ned's Atomic Dustbin and I made a dustbin with a, with the Ned's, Ned's logo on it, you know, like a nu- nuclear, you know, uh warning in Ned's logo. And I put it on the side, every radio station I went to had it, <laughs> like in, you know, like when I sent it out, every time I walked into that radio station. And, and it was, it looked like it, they hadn't just put it out for me. It was full of trash, you know? And so, uh, so I, I think that, um you know, if you really think about how, how to really tie that swag re- truly into what, like, don't send any backpacks. Like we all have a lot of backpacks, you know, like, don't, don't, I, I don't even know what to do. I don't even have kids to give them to anymore. I mean, I, you know, they're uh, so, um, I mean, I, you know, my kids all have the, the backpacks that somebody gave me. And so, Anyway, so, but think about how to really tie it in, not an automatic something, but something that really means something to someone like, like the Adirondack chair or the little whale. Anyway, that's it.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a cool part of the industry and NAB is swag central. Anyway, let's move on to the next question.
1: Next question is from David Paskin in Miami, Florida. And David asks, has anyone played with the IzzyCast beta? And Alex. Have you, have you played with it, David? Have you gotten a chance to to... i've i'm
4: signed up i've downloaded it i'm a little afraid to open it only because i feel like it's above above me you know
1: i think it's pretty simple we should let's see if we can get a lab with uh with l and see if they can work through it with us you know uh, because i think that i think that it would be it'd be great for some of us who have access to the beta to play with it Uh, i think that i i think i have it but i was like in the same boat of view i was like. Uh, I got to think about this a little bit. I think I can't remember whether L had asked me if I had it or not. It's been a really busy couple of weeks for me. So, so he, but he did put in discord, uh, an invitation. So if, if anyone's right.
4: interested, you can go to the office hours, discord. Perfect. Perfect. Sounds good.
0: And don't forget, everybody, it is your questions that drive the show. I'm really excited today because there are a lot of votes on a lot of questions. I see bigger numbers than I have seen in a while. So you are paying attention to what we are asking you to do, which is voting the questions up or down and also submitting questions. And we appreciate that. You can submit them for the first hour or the second hour. Uh, Just go through Mukana and find the place. uh, Put your questions in. And that is going to drive the rest of the show run. But anyway, thank you. We appreciate you always being the driving force behind. behind office hours
1: every day. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. And Gordon asks, is there a quality difference between the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema 6K Pro and the Blackmagic Studio uh, Camera 6K Pro?
0: I don't think there's any quality difference. I think the sensors are exactly the same. There are there's a bit difference in terms of form factor. The studio camera obviously is meant for not so much run and gun shooting but studio camera. It's got an additional set of accessories that kind of enable that like the viewfinders and things like that. Uh, but I'm not sure that the chips are any different. Alex, do you have any I think the advantage? chips
1: are identical. It's just convenience. One is built to be more as a studio (laughs) and one is built to be something, but I think that I think Bill's right. The, the, uh, the, the studio camera and the 6k should be identical chips.
0: Yeah, if you need things like the tally indicators and uh, the little extra comms, it makes it easier to set up a headset. You know, that's what really a studio camera will do. If you have an operator out in the studio, you want those little features without running a lot of extra equipment. And the studio camera is kind of designed to form that function, fulfill that function. Whereas the, the regular Blackmagic 6K camera is... Uh, the same DSLR form factor, although slightly larger than most DSLRs. And then the typical use in the field is to outfit it with cages and rigs to allow you extra capacity. Uh, so it can operate as a desktop kind of studio, studio camera, but it's more meant to be taken out of the field. The studio camera would, be, I think, be a little uncomfortable for run and gun shooting. And, so.
1: and, and you, uh, you'll find that chips change very slowly and cameras change very quickly because making new chips is hard. So so, uh, it's really complicated. So usually you get into a chip and you and Sony's been making the same chip that people use for a decade. You know, so it's definitely chip fabs are really, really complicated to do. But changing the feature set is much faster. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, Next question is from David Paskin in Miami, Florida. And David asks... For a low budget install, think church or temple, would you recommend a couple Insta360 links closer to stage or insist on spending the money on a more traditional PTZs mounted in the back? Hmm. Alex, what are your thoughts? I would recommend more traditional PTZs mounted in the front. <laughs> so, so, like, you know, so that's that, that would be my, my, my opinion. Um, you know, so a lot of times you want to think about the, uh, you know, you may have a back shot. The problem is, is that, you know, the back shot is really not very compelling and you'll find that your average view time doesn't maintain very well when you're on those long those long shots there. One thing you might want to think about uh, is that if you have, you know, if you think about some version of, you know, you have uh, pews and uh, you have a sanctuary, it depends on whether you're having more of a square thing or whether it's more in the round. But think of someone sitting up here. What you really need is something over here that's going to get them here. Oftentimes, some something over here, if they're walking and you can cover them, and then you might have that back that back coverage shot um, but if you can get those on those wings, you're gonna you you can get some kind of dramatic shots. Um, the shot that you know, the shot that uh, looks really nice when someone's at a at a podium or anything else is is kind of a profile shot of them, where the background is out of focus and there's just there and it and it kind of creates this uh, heaviness, you know, or or not heaviness, but 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 uh important you know kind of feel to it it has a very cinematic feel to it so getting that kind of mo- it's one of the few places i use profiles is when a speaker is at a location that i know they're not going to move i try to get over to a profile where i'm really looking at it and i want to have this kind of soft um uh, depth of field the team that worked on uh, the, the reason i got into it was the team that worked on uh oh i think it was um uh, it was one of the one of the elections, and they were shooting stuff with Michelle Obama, and they were just shooting these these um, these profiles of her. If you go back and try to find Michelle Obama talking uh, during the twenty sixteen election, I think, and they just got these incredible profiles of her talking that just had this weight to it that that I started adding to a lot of shows, and I found that it was a really um, uh, you know really really useful. So I would the the problem with the links is they really don't go very far. They're really a home thing. They're going to go like three feet. Uh, you know, three or four feet is about the the optimum for those links. So you're going to need longer lenses. Um, I will say that in the events that we're using right now and that we're doing, we're renting um, more and more often we're renting NOAA's FR7s <laughs> down in L.A., I love them. <laughs> so so the, so the FR7s are great. They're a little expensive. A little pricey to put into things, but they look amazing um, in these environments. I wouldn't put them in the back of the room, um, but on those wings they look they look amazing.
0: Yeah. I don't know if this is anything close to what you're talking about, yeah. but that's um that's a shot from one of my examples of lighting yeah. and the fact that it really does add a certain something to have someone talking in profile and you get close to them. Uh it's a it's a look. Yeah.
4: Right. Uh, David Paskin David that's an absolutely fascinating way to think about this I had never thought about having PTZ's on the sides the most places that I've been talking to what they're trying to do is not have technology in the way in front so that's why they put the PTZ in the back and then they get the 20 or 30 X zooms so that they can zoom into the you know the the clergy on on both sides um, And so what I've suggested to a couple of them who really can't spend one, two, $3,000 on a PTZ or seven or eight on, on an FR seven is to get a little tiny gooseneck. These Insta 360s are so small, get a gooseneck, put it on the end of your podium, put the PTZ there. And then it is about three feet from you. And if you do move it, it hypothetically could still follow you. But I love the idea of having the PTZs on the sides.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think that it's it. You have to decide how important that online audience is, where you decide to put them. I, in these kind of environments, I almost always use PTZs, and the reason for that it's just where we put them. And I I try to get pretty aggressive. It is a big investment at first, but it's a lower investment from a labor perspective down the road, and it's a lot less distracting. You don't have camera operators that are up front and moving around, and so um, I think that it's a lower it's it's a lower hit down the road, and. Even if you get something, I mean, the, the hard part is is that the and the other ones that I would look at, I, you know, they're probably in the ballpark. Maybe are the Canon five hundred series, are less expensive than the FR sevens, but still have a really great chip in them. Um, I haven't gotten to use it, but I've talked to people who are really happy with those as well. Um, but it's like five thousand dollars a unit, not ten thousand or twelve thousand dollars a unit. Um, and and so. And they're small and easy to use, and so so I think that those are things to look at. I I do I'm not that excited about PTZs that are below that because the chips start to get pretty small, and that profile shot that I was talking about does not work if it's not out of focus. So if you don't get if you can't have a large enough sensor to drop that background out of focus, it's a horrible shot. Like it's just a disaster of a shot, you know. And so um, now that you made with the link. If you get it just right and you're zooming in on someone and there's enough distance back there, you may still get that depth of field. But it's super important to separate them if you're going to try to get that. Otherwise, it's just everything's in focus and it's just very confusing.
0: Uh, That was a good discussion of uh, that. Hopefully, David, that that was what you were looking for. Let's
1: go on to the next question. Uh, Next question is from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris asks, thoughts on the new Tiny 2?
0: I'm not sure I know what the Tiny
4: 2 is. David Paskin, can you help us?
1: Yeah, it's the one that Alex had a fit about yesterday,
4: uh, which was fantastic by the way. Just best 10 minutes of the show. Um so yeah, it it the Tiny 2 it it was finally released today. It's the follow-up to the Obsbot 4K. Um it is smaller not only than the old Obsbot 4K but then even than the Insta360. It's lighter than that and it's got all the same kind of functionality. The they have done some work on the um, on the software. And I know that, that, uh, Alex, you and I both, we love the Insta360 stuff. They've done some good work on that. It's not as good, but they've done some good work. Um, yeah, it, the wide field of vision doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the, the reason that I would maybe consider it is actually going back to the question we just talked about is if I wanted to, use it in a, in a, not on a, on a desk. Um, but it's out, it's three something, 370, 380, I think. Um, it's interesting. We'll have to take a look at it.
1: Alex. I, I don't think it's competitive with the, uh, to be, to be, to be honest, I just don't think that it, uh, unless you really, really want all the AI tools that they have built into it. And the Insta360 does some of those as well. I don't think they hit the mark. I think that they're it's, it's, the software is really, really important. Um, and and I don't think that they they nailed that. Um, so I think that that it's going to be uh, challenging, and that wider field of view does not make sense for ninety percent of the audience. So I think they're going to. I think that they had to get this camera out because I, I'm pretty sure that in talking to people around that I work with, the Insta360 was just annihilating them. You know, like you know, I'm nothing. You know, from from a market perspective, um, but I think that they didn't they didn't focus enough on the th- again the, the the field of the focal length is really a deal. You know, I don't know anybody that's using focal lengths longer, I mean, wider than the Insta360, and they made it wider. And and it just means that you're throwing away a lot of pixels um, to do what you're trying to do.
4: Uh, David, you wanted to come back? I just wanted to say, for what it's worth, OBSBOT was first to market with their original uh, little PTZ, uh, which was kind of revolutionary when they came out with it
1: before Insta got around and made it a whole lot
4: better. All right. Let's go to
0: the next question.
1: Uh, next question is from david paskin and uh, david asks of all the recent ai announcements and releases what do you think long term will be the most impactful
0: somebody on our team who spends a lot of time in the ar weeds is john Preto. john
3: this is a tough one this is like you know the invention of the internet or the invention of the smartphone mobile phones same sort of paradigm is happening now with ai however I think it's the medical breakthroughs that are going to happen. DeepMind, DeepMind had OpenFold, um, their AlphaFold program that did the protein sequences from folding into 3D structures. That's huge, huge breakthrough in medical. And all the stuff that's going on in the medical industries, I watched some of the things on, uh, on NVIDIA. Um, and it's amazing what's going to happen in the medical industry. So I'm
0: most excited about what's going on there. That sounds pretty interesting. Alex, your thoughts?
1: I think that the, I've I really been paying attention a lot to the fluidity of, number one, the fluidity of learning. Um, I, <laughs> Robert Scoble, Robert Scoble uh, interviewed me at, at uh, the, at the, at the the there was a meetup for gender AI. I didn't really realize I was going to get interviewed. I was supposed to be interviewing other people, but he didn't. So it's on Twitter. And so you can talk, I talked a little bit about it. Um, but one of the things that I, I really think about is this conversation. I want to recipe I want it for this many people I don't want pasta I want I want it to be authentic. I want it to be you know like I can say all those things and it just keeps rewriting that that uh, that recipe until I get what I want. same thing with mid journey where I can I can keep on just talking to it and I get I eventually get something that I want that would take a long time to do with somebody else. Um, the other thing is is just the distribution of knowledge. Um, you know, what we're going to see is, is that, you know, you have meetings and a lot of those meetings, it's like, okay, who's going to caption it? And how's it going to get captioned? And what is it going to do? We are less than two or three years away from a meeting happens. And all, it's translated into 60 languages. There's no captioning. It it, it redubs everybody um, into the other languages. And it uses uh, it deep fakes to change their mouth. So it looks like they're saying what they were going to say. And you can watch the original if you want. But when you look at films, when you look at film dubbing, this is going to happen. Very, you, the, people are already working on it. And the technology is already working. Uh, they're only using it. You'll see some things reach the surface. But they're using a handful of clips here and there for putting things out, putting stuff out but but this is happening where you know you're going to see this in many 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 languages their mouth is going to do what it needs to do their the vocals are they're not having someone say it again they're literally having them it's taking the original and then it's rebuilding it in the other language now oftentimes they'll have somebody speak it you know as be, as close as they can but then it's remapping it to the the original actor's voice so that it's Tom Cruise saying it every single time and but the, that kind of thing um is going to make a lot of things a lot easier for us to distribute to a lot more people so the the speed of knowledge is going to increase exponentially every year for the next decade so it'll do the things that john was talking about but how fast there's so many things that are locked up in english and locked up in chinese and locked up in swahili and locked up and all of that's going to get opened up because we can we can make that happen much faster and we're going to learn a lot i mean we, we, we've been doing this for a long time. You know, this has been an, you know, like the speed of knowledge has been going like this. We're, we've been in a hockey stick, you know, for a long time now, <laughs> you know, but but it's about to, uh, it, it's a, It's just going to get very, very intense as we, as we go forward.
2: Felipe. Well, my example is not as complex as Alex's, but for example, what happened to me yesterday, I had a call. I knew that a call would be a little bit complex with a lot of subjects and I recorded a call ran it through Mac uh Mac Whisper, so open AI Whisper, and then got the the transcription and threw it on GPT four and say, hey, can you give me one the email that I promised on the call and two meeting minutes? Oh Both of gosh. them came out perfectly. Oh, and it, it saved me hours of work right there.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: That's amazing. That's
1: that's really amazing. David? Uh, the, the everyday people
4: being able to use this in everyday ways is really astonishing. This is not serious at all, but yesterday in our Canva keynote lab, we discovered that Canva has built in AI narration. So you can upload a picture of yourself and it will, I don't have the audio turned on, but it, I typed words in and it animated me saying those words. Um, then I took, uh, a an image from that I generated in, um, help me out here. Uh, mid, mid journey, mid journey. Thank you. I'm sorry. So this is the original, um, uh, image over here on the right. And then I uploaded that same image and I, again, just typed some text in now it's not great. It's not great, but it's a little crazy that it could make me say something. Now it's one of the things we discuss is that, to my eye, because it's me, it looks ridiculous. If I were to just post this somewhere and people
2: don't know me, I think they might think it was actually me. Well, think of do- those introductions that, for example, there is in Stephen Colbert that they make a, a funny music, uh, making fun of something that happened. They can create this much faster and maybe even have more of those in the show, for example, as well.
0: Which puts more and more and more weight on The perception of authenticity and trying to figure out what is real and what is not. And our kids are going to have an interesting time coming up and through the course of their lives in terms of figuring out whether the thing they see is a real thing or a generated thing. It's going to be a challenge to society, Alex.
1: Yeah, I think that um, we are moving very quickly where audio video, text, all of that stuff will not be admissible in court or not be really that important in court. It'll be a piece of evidence that we don't pay much attention to um, because we can't, we can't verify it. Like it, it's going to be very, very hard to verify those things. And it's, it, it again, it, it doesn't have to, it, you know, everything about law is a confidence game, right? It doesn't, because you have a jury, you know, so it doesn't matter whether you prove it. If juries get to a point where they just don't think that video and, and audio are, are, you know, all you have to do is poke a hole in it. The defense just has to poke a hole in, this could have been generated and blah, blah, blah. And them just saying that will will poison the jury and so the so the you know the thing is, is i think that we're going to change the way the way evidence works you're going have to have to have a lot more evidence um that comes from a lot of different directions people are going to have to learn that they they can't take anything you can't take any video any audio any people say well people are going to get fooled they're only going to get fooled for a little while <laughs> and then they're just not going to believe anything that they see and 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 i think that that's actually pretty healthy that they feel like i have to actually research this i have to see it from a couple of different angles i have to you know i can't take anything uh, on face value i think that we've been taking things on face value for wait for you know like more than a century too long <laughs> maybe maybe a couple centuries too long um and and so it's important that uh, that we you know many people have been incarcerated many people have died because we took things in face value you know like and so it's it's important that we uh that we really are careful and and this is going to create that because you're not going to be able to believe anything that you see much longer because everything's going to look real That brings
0: up the ancillary question, this will be the last little thing, but, you know, so could somebody create a case against you using these tools that
1: has nothing to do with reality and you have to spend a lot of time and effort to defend yourself against that? You you could, but the problem is, is that once that case happens and if it gets poked open, it'll the impact that it'll have on the entire legal, uh, you know, the, the all cases. Will be will be intense. so someone probably will try to do some of those things and they'll try try to submit those things but but as people do that, it's going to just make it much harder for prosecutors to get juries to believe anything you know that they're that they're looking at and the same thing that you know I, I never uh, I never end up on juries because they ask do you have any do you have anything that keep, will keep you out And I said well I'm, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to chain of custody and immediately I'm dropped out of the jury pool. <laughs> You know, because you know the um uh the chain of custody is a is a really complicated thing that no one can do well, and they know it. <laughs> you know? And so, and so as soon as you as soon as you un- say I am gonna I want to know where where that evidence has been at every moment, uh, or I'm not going to convict somebody that no one no prosecutor wants you on there. So if any you know, and so the thing is is that that is the that many of these systems are very imperfect, and if you poke a hole or you look a little deeper uh, into it. Uh, you you know, it's really hard to find, you know, make this work at all. So
0: It's interesting. If the Alex's of the world are never on juries, who do we face if we ever <laughs> get in trouble? <laughs> anyway, uh, it is about 20 minutes till the top of the hour, which means that I get to remind you that uh, we have a room for a couple more questions in here. Uh, so make sure that if you have something that's not solved for today, we're looking forward to the top of the hour and our discussion of uh, our second hour topic. But for right now, next question.
1: Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, uh, and uh, Douglas asks, uh, Sony announced the Venice 4K Live Bundle, which packages the Venice camera with a multi-dyne silverback fiber optic camera adapter. What switcher would you probably use with a camera of this class? Could you use it with an ATEM Constellation or 4K?
0: Almost every camera, no matter what the class of the camera has, certain consistent output. So I would imagine that yes, you could probably use any of those cameras uh, with the constellation if it has. Uh, it, now, sometimes not all the resolution is immediately available. But Alex, what's your experience working with these IRN systems? Yeah, we've actually
1: done that um, with the venices uh, and so the, um, the 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 issue is is that you you're going to shade that you're not going to shade it through the switcher you can't switch shade the sony camera with the black magic switcher so you're going to use external um, sh- shading units for for those cameras uh, to control those but you can absolutely this is just simply allowing you to have that live feet output um, from the venice and it can go into any switcher really it's, it's just going to it's going to deliver that content typically as just a baseband SDI. next question Next question is from Robin Cut, uh, Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, and Robin asks, having received an X32 rack for Christmas, well, congratulations, uh, I'm looking for a good tutorial. The YouTube videos I've seen don't quite do it. Thoughts on a good training source? Um, you know, one of the things you could do on Wednesday, every Wednesday
0: here, the audio guys come in and talk uh, at length about these things. We've got a lot of expertise that uh, coalesces around our Wednesday show. So consider that as an option. Alex,
1: what are the other things? Yeah, and I think that um, definitely jumping into into um, and asking questions on Wednesdays. Uh, I also think that uh, we're a lot of us are talking about putting together um, a, a lab, just a bunch of us opening up our X32s and bouncing around on them. There's so many people in this in this community that have X32s that I think it's probably worth us kind of talking through those things. Uh, you'll see us talking more about mixers um, later, a little later in the year. Sorry, it doesn't really solve your problem right now. Um, but uh, but I would ask questions in Discord, ask questions on Wednesdays, uh, and look for those things because I think that there's a lot of people here that use it. And we'll we'll talk more about it in, in the near future. Next question. Next question is from uh Douglas Carmichael. And uh Douglas asks, Futuri, a Cleveland-based media company, is introducing radio GPT, which uses chat GPT technology to replace on-air talent. Thoughts.
4: Uh,
0: soon it's going to be fast food gpt (laughs) everything mark giuliani so
5: douglas this is a great question i think a lot of it depends on the format um for music that would be easier to bring chat gpt into for the announcers for news talk i don't think we're there yet but what we are using it in our stations is really to help the clients compete better so we use it as marketing consultants to help them research the markets to find their competition to help improve their branding uh, we're using it on the creative side with keywords and spots, and that's how we are using the ChatGPT. In fact, it's in some of the software that we use to run the radio station already.
1: Interesting. Alex? Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of things that you could put it, like reading the news, reading the stocks, reading the, you know, some some things that are not necessarily needed. That's where we're going to see a lot of the AI hit pretty quickly is there's enormous amounts of things that we don't cover that we don't do that we don't write about because there's the the market for it is too small and and ai is just going to step into that world and suddenly start delivering huge amounts of data that we can just get and listen to and um, we could listen to a Summary of the council meeting that happened two days ago in Mandarin, <laughs> if we want to, uh, and that's probably less than a year or two away. And again, this means I think there's whole radio stations that may come up in other languages to serve those markets that are simply taking the text from one. You could take a have a radio station that is in, let's say, Korean. It takes an American uh, an announcer, takes the programming that's that's in there, and just converts all of the audio, all the all the spoken word in a track into Korean and delivers that or vice versa, you know, and so those are the kind of things that you're going to see is this kind of blending of languages pretty quickly where we don't have to think about, we can serve all those markets without having to, um, have a human do it. Next question. Next question is fr- from Felipe Baez in Prague, uh, uh, Czech Republic, Czech Republic. Is that right? Did I get that right? Um, uh, the, um, uh, this is not a question, but a suggestion for NAB. Could we make a video of what's in your bag? It could be an interesting to see how people pack for long days, mainly the crew that will be here to cover the event. What a fabulous idea,
0: Alex. What do you think?
1: I think it's great. We should definitely do that because I mean, there's a bunch of us that have are pretty pattern oriented about how we pack it. So I think even showing how we pack our clothes, if we're willing to do that and how we do all those things. A lot of us that do a lot of packing are pretty methodical about that. And what we bring as gear, I think would be really interesting.
0: Yeah, my wife changed my life when she taught me how to roll up yeah. things for packing. Right. It was
1: have, like, you done, have you done? Have you done? Have you done the the, clo- the clothing loaf? The clothing no, loaf is it, you no. you start and you start folding everything over top of each other and you fold everything into one big loaf of, of clothes that's super dense and then you set it in there and you can pack. You can definitely pack a week worth of, of clothes. Uh, three day, three or four days is nothing, but but you can do a week worth of clothes really easily and it'll fit into half of your carry on and so you can fill the other half with gear, which is what I do. I think I'm going to remember the phrase loaf of clothes for the rest of my my life, life. John Pretto. (laughs) Uh, You
3: don't carry a bag at NAB because you're going to walk 15 miles.
1: Oh, I think by uh, the stuff that we're going to bring in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely. Well, actually, the tiers, how do you pack to get there?
0: Right. And then what's the subset? Wasn't there a George Carlin routine about people's stuff and you have all this stuff in your house and then you go on a vacation, you take some of a part of your stuff and then you go on a day trip and you take less of your stuff. That describes my life pretty Mm -hmm. well when I'm going Mm -hmm. to a trade
1: show. Uh, Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. And Eric asks, uh, does streaming video provide an opportunity for audience-selected cutting styles, maybe even real-time AI-based cutting, or will the delivery of customized streams create too much additional bandwidth costs? Now,
4: well, that's interesting. David Paskin, what are your thoughts? So again, I, I hope I'm understanding the question correctly, but on YouTube now, you can create clips. So I pulled up yesterday's show, and if I click on clip, I can tell it exactly how much, you know, where I want to start, where I want to end. It'll create that clip. And then I can share that clip out on my own YouTube page.
0: Interesting. I didn't know
1: that existed, Alex. Uh, yeah, I think that it, it's mostly, uh, most people don't want to think that hard. So um, so I think that that's going to be the thing. But I do think you're going to be able to build potentially different shows that are AI driven that could be going out live. Um yeah, I think that the thing we're going to see more is more languages and more interactivity before we start making new cuts.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you know there've been some experiments with giving audiences, I know in sports they did a little good little bit by giving audience access to a variety of cameras and saying cut your own show. And I think in the it kind of was important for a little while. And I don't think it fell apart as people realized that the people who cut shows things like sporting events Have so much experience and understand what is the right angle to show people when there's a broken play to help them understand why the play fell apart and things (laughs) like that.
1: And also there's a lot of reasons we cut the things and not always because it's the best angle sometimes it's because something broke something isn't working something isn't like we're cutting around problems Good all point. the time so when you're watching a live just letting people just cut the way they want to may just show a lot of things that aren't working we had a we there was a, a thing where the LED wall broke when we were doing an event and they just cut to a close-up and just stayed there because if you looked at the wide you saw that half of the screen was black and so those are the kind of things that you know so a lot of times the cutting is not just to give you a creative experience <laughs> this does not show' what isn't working (laughs) that's a point well taken let's go to the next question next question is from david paskin in miami florida and david asks can someone please explain how to parse sensor size one over 1.28 inches 1.1 over 1.5 inches i don't know how to understand these phrases
0: ah it's ratio time alex you want to talk through it
1: yeah it's just the basic uh One over one is a one-inch sensor. One over half is a uh, one over two is a is a half-inch sensor, and then you're just looking at they're they're hedging these little these little sides. So one over one point five is halfway between the half-inch sensor and the full-size sensor. Um, One over one point two eight. So that they're measuring it in that in that frame because I think part of the problem they have is that people wouldn't understand it if you said it was this many millimeters or this you know centimeter or the English units aren't accurate enough and centimeters. Most Americans will be like, I don't know how big that is, and so, uh, and usually they have it listed somewhere in millimeters. Is typically what you see, so they'll will be a millimeter setting, which makes a lot more sense. And then there's this, but for Americans, we're going to give you this over inches and try to give you some variance that you can understand, that you can kind of get it. But what you want to think about is a half inch sensor is one over two, and then anything less than that um, is is going to be. Uh, anything more than that is smaller than that. So one third inch, one quarter inch is going to be, you know, smaller than the half inch chip. And then anything, a lot of people are now. The half inch chip is starting to become kind of table stakes. It's not quite there yet, but I don't see in five years we're not going to make any cameras that are that have sensors less than half inch. Uh, you know, so so there, there's a half inch is kind of becoming the thing, and then we're starting to move slowly. All of these are just shaving off edges to get to one inch. Next question. Next question is from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. And Jeffrey asks, did anyone watch the state of Unreal Engine yesterday? And do they have any thoughts?
0: I didn't, but it's interesting. You know, Nick Justician from Drexel University hung out here for a good little bit of time. And I think he's coming back to do more later. And he really took a deep dive with all of us into Unreal Engine and how uh, these metahumans work and things like that. It was really fascinating. It's also very complex. I remember at one point, Office Hours tried to uh, have all of us do some experiments with creating our own metahumans and it was really an amazingly complex process uh we had varying degrees of success i was on the low end of success with making a metahuman that had any resemblance to me in real life whatsoever other people did much better it is a complex and fiddly process so if they're continuing to evolve it perhaps fingers crossed making it easier as a tool for the common person without a lot of time in it
1: to succeed with be a pretty exciting thing. Alex, what are your experiences? Yeah, so some of the things that they showed off was foliage, a lot of foliage. Uh, and foliage is really hard to do in real time. <laughs> like it's, so it's really hard to show that stuff. So um so having really dense foliage of forest and so on and so forth uh you know was something that they're also being able to animate your meta human with an iPhone. So being able to literally pick up your phone and start talking into it and have the meta human get the animation is something that they're kind of tying, you know, very deeply into that. We'll see how long it takes I think it's supposed to come out this summer. Um and <clears throat> that would revolutionize a lot of things. So, so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how tightly that works. There's been other things, by the way, that have done this. I mean, that you can take an iPhone and connect it to Unreal, but being able to connect it directly to uh, MetaHuman is really, really, really interesting. Um, the Fortnite's Unreal edit- editor, and and you're starting to also see the creator economy that, that they're talking about, giving 40% back to the, uh, the the of the net revenues back to the creators. And so, I I believe that that's 40% of all of Fortnite's Uh, revenue going back to the creators which i think is a a pretty smart move for uh, for them to do Um, and then and then they're building the marketplace under a brand called fab so you can see why they were fighting this fight with apple is because they're going to start doing things where they want to build a huge marketplace and they don't want to pay apple 30 percent of that (laughs) so so that's the that's where the, the but now you're more of that starting to hit the surface
0: my hope for it because it was fascinating technology when I was playing with it back when office hours was doing that kind of deep dive. Um, it's just, there was a lot of friction in the way of me getting results out of it. So as they continue to reduce the friction and make it easier for the average person to come in and use the tools, nothing more exciting than that, the whole, the, the idea and what's happening with, um, Unreal Engine and all this is just one of the most fascinating parts of development. And I'm really looking forward to watching it as it continues to grow. Let's go to the next question.
1: Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. uh, And Douglas asks, in February of 2022, the legendary rooftop concert by the Beatles was shown in IMAX theaters. Considering it was presumably recorded in monophonic sound only, uh, would they have uh, used AI uh, source separation to upmix the uh, IMAX format?
0: So this was a Peter Jackson passion project. The famed director of Lord of the Rings was given access to the vaults at Apple Corps or wherever, whoever had the, the rights to the stuff. And I, uh, there were long and involved uh, pieces I watched online about the processes they went through to really spruce up all the footage it was originally shot in film cameras the audio mix was different they had they a lot of the rehearsal footage they had to match and so i would imagine that every state of the art technique at the moment was put at Peter Jackson's disposal for the end of this. I will say that I think I, I was fascinated by uh, "Get Back." Was the piece they made out of it, and it documents the recording of those songs in real time at the time it was happening. It's one of the things I've enjoyed most in terms of a behind-the-scenes look at how brilliant music is created by a group like the Beatles. Um, and not only did I love it, but my wife was just absolutely enthralled. And she's a little bit younger than I was. And, you know, she was a Beatles fan, but it, it wasn't the music of her life as the Beatles were for my life. And so we both were, I think, really engaged with this documentary because of the quality of the footage and its historical importance. One of the biggest bands of all time. Alex, your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So they they may have. A lot of people are now starting to experiment with taking uh, running tracks into a AI system and pulling out the the vocals pulling out the a couple different instruments I can't quite get to all of them but five or six instruments and then you can subtly start to move them around a little bit. They it probably would have been pretty subtle I believe that the Beatles were involved in the process so they're going to be listening to it and making sure that it doesn't go too far. Uh the other thing that a lot of times people do is they take that uh that monophonic or or even stereo and they add a little reverb that just kind of fills up the 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 um the the, the theater a little bit. Um, that makes it feel a little bit more there, um, but I don't. Yeah, I don't. Don't know exactly what they had there. I believe they actually had some multi-track from that actual piece. So I think that they don't have to be limited to mon- monophonic if they had the original, um, the the original concert. I I believe that they might have had all of those microphones and they could have moved it around a bit.
5: Chris, the other thing to keep in mind is that although you know George Martin was the genius behind a lot of the Beatles. Uh, his son, super smart too, and very much next generation Pro Tools. I saw the Beatles um, Love Show in Vegas, which George Martin's son did all the work on, which is fantastic. I'm not a Beatles fan; I never understood the the allure to them. Sorry, I know that's sacrilegious to a lot of people, but uh, what was amazing is seeing the Love Show. I knew the lyrics to every single word, even though they every single song. Even though I'm not a big Beatles fan, that's just how much it's ingrained in your head. Uh, and George, uh, George Martin's son did amazing stuff of pulling things together from unlikely uh, places and uh, made a, uh, the, the audio scape of that show in the theater in Vegas is fantastic. So there's a million things that you can do to enhance something and make it sound huge.
0: Yeah, if nothing else, just from a creative point of view, if you haven't seen Get Back, go go search it out. It's on one of the streaming services, I think maybe Apple TV or something. Um, it's it's just fascinating to see, you know, a song that has become part of the human consciousness literally globally. And you will see the three of them just hacking around in the studio or two of them, or all four of them, and the idea that would eventually become the hook for one of the most successful pieces of. Musical art in all time just kind of appears, and you watch it form and be developed, and you watch them talking about it, and then you get it's just amazing. Uh, let's go to the next question.
1: Next question is from Eric Billings, uh, and Eric asks: uh, Has anyone explored the differences at a pixel level between cameras-generated photos and AI-generated photos, uh, similar to the analysis in Judge Dread? I'd expect uh, compression and algorithm artifacts to be reproducible and indicative of uh, fakery. Alex, for now, like, you know, like, like, we <laughs> look at it now, the, the bottom line is, is that sure you can start to do that. Um, but, but it, a lot of that stuff is going to be more and more, harder and harder and harder to to tell the difference between. So we can, yeah, right now it's absolutely, you can look at something, and go, oh, that's mid journey or, or something like that, but that's not going to last for much longer. Let's kick the next two questions out and get to the top of the hour. Next right. one. Uh, next question is, uh, from, uh, uh, sorry, something popped under uh, from Jack Ruppel uh, in, uh, in Breckenridge, Colorado. And Jack asks, in addition to my Insta360, I would like to upcycle my iPhone 6S and X- XR X-ray for, uh, for camera duty with my ATEM Mini Pro. Any opinions from the panel? Also, sixth generation iPad video pencil.
0: I'm not sure about up I mean, you can usually get video out through the iPhone lightning to HDMI it's adapter. it's XR, not so
1: X-Ray. Yeah, so XR, oh,
0: XR yeah. XR, okay. Um, and so uh, a lot of us use our iPhones in through an HDMI input to an ATEM. It works just fine. Um, I So I would think the 6th Gen iPad would have the same capability. Uh, Alex?
1: Yeah, just time? make sure you're using the Apple uh, lightning to HDMI. Uh, so the OBS bot makes a... Converter that will turn your your get your Insta 360 in there. You can't control it in the same way, but you can get the Insta 360 in uh, as a as a USB camera. the The iPhones can be brought in with Lightning, but you got to use the Apple adapter. The all the other adapters are just worthless. Um, and then remember that you can you can share your Apple phone to your to an Apple TV, and it gives you a little wireless camera because it'll share to that. It'll screen share to that, and then you take the Apple TV and put it into the into the switcher. Let's handle our last question, Felipe. Uh, next question is from Felipe Baez in Prague, Czech Republic, and uh, Felipe asks: um, I just received the invite to download the Arc browser. Anyone anyone has any experience with it? If so, how do you like it? And what is or or was your preferred browser before testing Arc?
0: Uh, I haven't heard of it. I haven't. I don't see anybody who's nodding on here, so we may not. But if it's
1: a, a competitive browser and it has potential let's take a look at it oh alex you want to comment i keep trying to move away from chrome but i'm having a hard time so i i, I you know i've used chrome for so long uh, mostly because we were doing so much stuff with hangouts and we, we you know it was hard because it was only the thing that tested and every time i open something else even safari i just get frustrated like i'm just like oh my gosh why is it so hard <laughs> like you know like i just want to i just want to drag something into my i just want to drag a bookmark into, into your edit no i can't do that so anyway so um so i find i find that uh I keep on trying new ones. No, do you, Felipe, what is the, what makes the ARC different? Is it a...
2: Well, according to them, uh, it should free you up from your tabs. So they're moving the tabs from the top to decide and saying that list view is something that people that's more natural for people instead of the tabs on uh, on on the horizontal at the top uh they, it's a chromium based uh, browser as well but for example my experience is one i like using safari first of all and i feel like i'm more immersed into websites with safari because Uh, It almost doesn't have a toolbar. It's very thin. So I'm basically browser there, all browser, all website. And with the Arc, suddenly I have this extra thing on the side and it does a border around the website. And as soon as I open the the browser, the fans on my M1 Max turned on. And I don't think that is a good sign.
1: Yeah, it's doing some work.
0: All right. Well, we'll keep our eye on it as we go. So it is the top of the hour. And that means we're turning our attention to our second hour topic today. And today we're talking about video interviews. And we're open for all things having to do with interviews. It's a big uh, discussion. And it is, as I mentioned earlier in the opening for the show, one of the ways to generate content that is really uh, pretty well known and understandable. But a lot of people dive into conducting on-camera interviews and they have trouble because it can be a a, an uncomfortable situation when you're starting out to understand how do I engage, how do I ask good questions, how do I bring information out of the person that I'm talking to, and that I do it in the right way so that I don't end up having to work too hard to create the content that I'm looking for out of a long stream of consciousness interview with somebody. Um, I always start out with what are my goals for every interview? And the key goals for me is I want them to look natural. I don't want them to look forced. I want them to be informative. I want to get the information out of the person that that the audience would most want to hear about. I want it to be engaging. In other words, I want it to look good and sound good and not have anything technically wrong with it. And then the last one that I always think about is that I'm always trying to find things that are what I call bite friendly. We generally don't use large sections of an interview unless the interview is the whole video you're making. You're looking for pull quotes and little sound bites that really help the audience understand. And so sometimes the art of interviewing is to try to get into that space where you get that good sharp, capsulized quote that really does make a point. Um, Every time Alexander or I have talked about interviewings here, he comes back to, and I believe this 150% preparation is everything when you're going to do an interview and there's, different kinds of preparation. You want the interviewee, the person you're talking to, to be prepped properly so that they understand what they're getting into. The interviewer, if that's you or someone who you're working with, has to be incredibly well prepped so that they understand what's going to be happening. You want to prep on the topic so that you kind of know some general things about what's going on. Then you get into the technical stuff. You want to prep the location so that you have a chance of getting good um visuals and good auditory signals. And then those last two things, the video, your framing, your lighting, how your set is creating, and your audio to make sure that everything that's being said comes across clearly. Those are all critically important, and we'll talk about them all today. Uh, There's also a couple of other little things to think about. We talk a lot about using open-ended versus closed-ended questions in this. You don't want to give somebody a question on an interview situation where they can just go, nope. And that's it. That doesn't really uh, successfully draw out your subject. I do have a list that we will talk about later if anybody is interested of what I consider the four deadly sins of conducting an interview. Uh, This is my opinion after having done about 250 live interviews on camera over the course of my career. But other people have all sorts of things uh, to add to this. I know Alex has done probably more than I have in this area. So, Alex, do you want to Talk a little bit about what you're interested in covering today?
1: Yeah, I, I grabbed uh, I grabbed some frames from things that I like. <laughs> so I figured I, not so much stuff that I've done, but um, but but things that I uh, that I that that were on YouTube. So this will probably mean that you only get to experience this live uh, because I'm gonna show some pieces of things. We'll just kind of skip through them, but it'll probably be enough to flag, get a flag. Sorry, Jeffrey. Um, and so let's uh let's cut to a couple of them. One of the one of the ones that I, I watch a lot is Errol Morris. So I mean, I just like to I study him a lot. Um so here you see him, he's experimenting a bit more with a frame here than than um, than typical. Uh, and uh, I'll try to get my mouse to the right, there we go. Um, and so let's take a look at, uh, let me take a look at this here. So what you're seeing here, what you wanna look at is how much of the of, of this area he's actually giving away. And he does a couple different things here as you start to look at it. So he's got the soft background, the thing you always have to look at is weight. So what is he doing over here to weight this out over here? And so we'll talk a little bit about that framing, um, you know, kind of as we, as we move forward, let me see if this will actually, let me, yeah. yeah. So, and now he's doing this upshot and you'll notice that he puts something in front. So this is something that that what I will say is this is not the way to do a basic interview. This is a master doing what they know how to do and creating a feel. But one of the things that's really interesting in interviews when you can get it is to throw something right in front of the camera. And that's going to give you this kind of soft, like it gives you like you're somewhere and you're looking at someone through something, which I think is really, um, really interesting as you as you go there. And here you can see. Um, doing this, this is a very, this is not something that I would do with a standard corporate one. <laughs> this is something I do when I'm in control. <laughs> so, um, you know, do, having this, all this weight in the background behind her and she, and they're not keeping it the whole time that way. That's a, you know, that's, and so you can see him again, showing these and he's playing a lot, you know, in that, in that frame. Um, but what you are noticing also is this, and I'll try to show some a little bit later. This is a massive uh, source. So it feels like it's coming from a window, but this is mostly likely a minimum of a four by four that's right on the outside. You want, And Felipe, you can interrupt uh,
2: as I'm oh, talking. All right. Yeah, I, I wanted to just point out how beautiful, beautifully composed this image is using the lines there. You have a line coming yeah. from her left side, to cut the line on the top and the line from the sofa. That's perfectly aligned there with the horizon. Mm. And I think that that brings up this composition so much to life.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. The other thing about Morris and the way he does these types of interviews is you always have to look, you have to, you have to keep track of the number of cameras he's doing because yeah. he would never have a primary angle be this or, or right. the shot with the inclusion. That's like camera four yeah, or if you look five. At- yeah, this so is probably at probably least, the, i'm going to say five angles that's your primary angle probably right
1: three four and we'll show another one here for a second but but the um but anyway and, and this is one of the things that's interesting is she's looking off frame one of the things that when we go to this this is fog of war and um one of the great documentary to watch as far as just art the art of putting this together one of the things he does here is that eye line is right at you. You know, this is actually, um, this is the what he said he invented, but and Courtney disagrees, um, the Interatron approach um, to this whole process where he's looking, it's, he's looking through a teleprompter to the director. And when Errol Morris started doing this, it was literally like a video camera plugged into a video camera. Nowadays, we can do this through Zoom, we can do this. We usually try to put the person in the other room. In these ones, you can hear Errol Morris calling out because they're in the same room. They're looking at each other. Uh, we put people in other rooms <laughs> so you can't hear them talking to each other um but but what you what you're seeing here is uh i find this to be the most interesting view and so even before zoom and all the things that we did i always really liked this terratron process we had a client uh, that really liked it and so we just shot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos this way and i find it to be much more compelling than off it but but again, fairly simple background that's out of focus that doesn't compete with him too much. I'm not super fan of these these verticals, but um, but it's a simple background. It's about him, um, and you know, and and you can see that they and you Oops. can see how he's oh. he's using lots of different ways of doing that. This is a really really, you know, this is you'll see Ken Burns do this, you'll see Aaron Morris do this on some things. Um, it's not used for a lot of the interviews, but it's a very aggressive cut their head off, you know, um, thing. Generally, that will not be the only shot you do, <laughs> but some people do. Some people will commit to this. Um, and that's this is usually
5: the shot you do when somebody's guilty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you but but you know, I will say that that you'll find. And now this is where you also you see this move. How has he's moving there? A lot of people will sit there and lock off their camera to do these interviews. And what you really need when you're when you're doing a close up like this, and in a lot of other cases, uh, and you'll see this a couple times when you see those camera moves, that is that is not a cheap tripod, and it is not locked off. That is a heavy tripod with a heavy head with someone know, who knows how to use it. Um, doing a soft move, the idea is to to reframe him in a way that that makes sense without the without it, until until we speed it up like this, you don't notice it. Um, this is a little dutch which is a little um, again so now we're going to go this is this is actually the next one is what we um, this is what we uh, why we decided to do this we want to do the show is because of this 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 episode here Um, probably some of the best interviews that I've seen as far as just the pure technical capacity of these um, here this is from light and magic and uh, this is what's interesting is is that it's out of focus enough to to not really be paying attention to it this is a This is a mixture of short depth of field, but it's also really big rooms. So this is something to look at. They created huge volumes. Um, this is, I think George was shot at the ranch. I think I recognize that, that room. <laughs> so, so the, uh, um, and, uh, a lot of the stuff was actually shot in the building that we work in. So in 3210 and the model shop across the street and what they had were huge volumes to throw that background. The thing we want to learn there is we're throwing that background way into the background so that it drops off. The advantage of having a large volume, if you can get that, is that you can, you can stop down so that the subject stays in focus even if they lean in and out, but you still get that super soft depth of field. So you'll see this in, I didn't, I didn't pull any frames from the the social uh, dilemma, but they did that. They had massive volumes um, and they don't have to make everybody super short depth of the field. Everybody's in focus, but these are all as you look at all of these, they're in each one of them tells you where they're at. They're not using the same place to do an interview. They're going to a place that communicates that. So George is at the ranch. I don't know where this one is. Um, you know, these are pretty soft. This is uh, down in LA, I think. Um, and again, look at how they 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 choose wide, short, you know, they're and they're making all those decisions about, is this a waste up interview? Now, some of that you can do. Some people will say, well, I'll shoot a little wider to do a, um, I'll shoot a little wider and then I can always punch in, which you can do. The problem is if you shoot too wide, everything comes back into focus, you know? And so you have to be careful of shooting wide. And that's where you really do wanna stop, you know, wanna open up that aperture, try to get that short depth of field, because when you cut closer, it the depth of field should, should shorten. And so it feels, it will actually feel a little like a jump cut when you go down that path. Um, this is, and, and again, some of these are done in, in locations, Notice how this one's a little bit more in focus. And part of that reasoning for here, this is actually um, his office. Um, and you know, so, that he's, he's actually, you can, this is, uh, and so, they're keeping a little bit more detail. in. so, look at how they're, how they're using that. And again, the thing you want to look at here is, let's see if I can get to a frame where you see it. One of the things that I do a lot is uh, when I'm looking at a frame that I really like, uh, I'm going to look at his eye. And the reason for that is that your eye is a—it's a reflector that tells you where all the lights were. <laughs> so, so you can—if you grab that high-res frame, I don't have the high-res frame. If you grab the high-res frame of someone's eye and you scale it up, it will show you where every light is in front of them um, and how they got lit that way. And so, um, so I use people's eyes all the time as a uh, um, as a way to as a way to kind of reverse engineer what that looks like. But again, when you see this really soft you know, open area. This is a massive, it's at least four feet by four feet, um, softbox, you know, and possibly a couple of them to get that to get that look. This isn't like a little one by one panel, you know, that's gonna that's gonna get that kind of um that kind of frame. Um and uh and so let's see here. Somehow somehow I and then I got I actually there we go. Hold on. So, and here, you know, again, the other thing is, is that you can just kind of throw things together. Um, you know, this is just a, you know, they, they could have just, they, I'm sure that they just put this up and they probably knocked holes through here just to create something interesting. They probably just put poked holes through it to get what they were looking for. I don't, you know, I don't think this is probably not an existing stage. They probably set this all up, um, you know, for, you know, uh, for that weight, you um, and you see all these here and we won't spend too much more time on this, but again, like if you look at his eye, that is a really, really big soft box that's probably right off camera, you know, to get, to get that kind of look. And what it does is it, it grabs all of this, but it's very, it's very forgiving. It gives you this nice soft look. Um, it looks like it by having the light over here, it looks like it's being uh, generated from there. Um, again, very, very large space. Um, that, that they're working inside of. Anyway, and then as we go to this, I think this might be the last one here. Um, this one, what I thought was interesting is they just let this all blow out. You know, let me uh, change color. They let this all blow out Yo. here. Um, you know, uh, so they um, uh, they really wanted they wanted to capture all of that there. But again, sixty minutes does this all the time. They'll cut this and they shoot it that way, and that's the only camera they have. They've got a wide camera that, that is capturing. You'll see, you'll see all the shots here, I think. So here's his interview back. Um, and there's the, there's their kind of a uh, wide master that they're doing there. And that's a, they, they may have another one. So they may have, uh, if you think of the two of them there, they have one that's going close up here, one that's going close up here. They'll typically cut him a little wider and then they'll cut, cut him off with it with the return because it makes it more intense for him and then they may they have this one this one, this one is the one you're seeing right now and they may have another one over there to capture those those pieces. Um, but the other thing to remember is is that they didn't just put them by the window there's there's at least um, you can see a reflector down below him. Um, and they probably have another reflector over here that's bouncing, bouncing that light. They wouldn't use a light here because they probably couldn't generate enough light to, to keep up with the sun. So typically you'll use a reflector to, they're, they're using that to fill, you know, fill him in here. And then this is, oh, this is what I thought was interesting about this was that they, um, that they really, they're doing an interview that really captures him and captures where he's at. And then they get into close-ups, you know. So they they kind of want to show you him in his environment. Um, this is probably my guess is is probably his house, and they're trying to kind of you know keep him. Um. And then the other thing I'd say there is that it is this shows you the importance. A lot of people uh, this shows you the importance of interrupt of having a second camera. So having that second camera is not just to get another angle; it's to cut around things. So you need to be able to cut around the things that you're looking at. Like this is. He I need to cut from this place to this place, and I need I need another angle to get to. So I'm sure that right there they cut to something else that was, you know, that was there. And you and you can see here, this is what I was talking about before. When he cuts close up, that depth of field changes dramatically. And you want to be conscious to it uh that that, that shouldn't be the same. That's why you can't just shoot wide and punch in all the time for for a lot of those things to look at. Hopefully that generates some questions, <laughs> at least to look at that and from a from kind of a technical perspective of thinking about you know how how we do this. I spend a lot of time, I admit, um, studying other people's documentaries. You know, when I think about how I'm lighting those things and how I'm putting those together, um, I I really focus a lot on you know analyzing those interviews and analyzing what people are doing so that I can. Uh, there's no reason for me to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> I look at the things that I like. I watch a lot of documentaries. I keep the ones that I'm the most interested in and usually try to reproduce those uh, over time.
0: So if you're trying to create some of these, uh, it's good to understand that, that even in the ones uh, we saw a lot of low key lighting and a couple of examples of higher key lighting. Um, This is an example of a higher key kind of circumstance. And even though it looks much better illuminated than some of them, and even though it doesn't have a ton of depth of field behind the, the subject, uh, it still has the original ideas of lighting, which is a key light side, a fill side, and some sort of backlight or separation side. In this particular case, the key and the fill are not distinctly different, but they are there. You're seeing that one side of her face has a substantially higher light than the other side of her face. And The rules of traditional three-point lighting, even if you don't use them in every interview, I could break out on everything that Alex showed where they are using the idea of backlight is separation, key light is where they want you to focus most of your attention, and a fill light to bring up whatever is in shadow. Even in the ones that are highly dramatic, it is very seldom that there is no detail in there at all. Um. This is an example of something. and and Alex, and we may talk a little bit about it. if you want to bring up any kind of subjects and Alex was already kind of deconstructing the lighting grid by what you see. And it is quite possible to do. I when I saw this thing, I thought, okay, well, this isn't really Rembrandt. It's the the highlight on her left apple of her cheek is at a really extreme angle. And one of the things I always look for when I'm trying to figure out how did somebody light a shot that I like? Where are the shadows falling and what are they shaped like? And in this particular case, the key light on the on her left side uh, is at a pretty extreme angle. So you've got a pretty deep shadow under her nose. And if you look at the shadow that her nose is casting, it's up high It is far to the right. That is a little bit of an unusual angle. You don't see that too often. It really does pop her cheek up, though. And because she is such a a positive-looking person, it emphasizes the aesthetic aesthetics of what you may be trying to get out of the person. It emphasizes their personality. You light something when you're talking about something serious in a different way that you talk, uh, you'd light something where you're promoting a product and you want everything to be seen. So there's a lot of aesthetics go into this as well. Uh, let's go on to and our... I was going to show
1: one one more thing yeah, real quick as, as we go through it. The um, uh, Just to give you a sense, a lot of times these things look Look relatively simple, <laughs> you know, and and you think that they're all there. Uh, this is just a behind the scenes of a um, of a shot that you know something that we did a while ago. Um, and if you look at it, that's what oftentimes these things kind of look like. So we have a you know a very large source here that's on the subject. We've got a couple shotgun mics, and um, we've got a backup shotgun mic here. Um, we've got this is both a fill as well a little very subtle fill as well as it was too it was too reflective here. Um, we also have some more fill back here that's going on. And then we have the teleprompter that's here and our monitor that we can look at. And so, you know, a lot of times things look very simple and you think, I think this is always the the thing that we we try to have people get is that, you know, you look at a TikTok and it looks like a simple uh, setup. And oftentimes it is, you know, rarely, uh, you know, rarely as, as simple as it looks. Here's another one from the same shoot, but you'll see the, you know, a lot of light, We have reflectors here. We have, you know, a lot of times we have grids that we're building out. And these, you know, rarely is it just a little camera with a a little light. And That's why a lot of us, when someone says, well, I have like a little, like one of these little lights or they're selling these little, even little one by ones. um, Those aren't things that we, those are news gathering lights, (laughs) you know, unless you put a whole bunch of them together, uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to capture the kind of, the kind of images that you see. Uh, when, when you see most interviews, these are very large, you know, two by two, four by four, um, size lights to get the kind of lighting that you're expecting out of them. Interesting. Um, let's go into our first question. Our next question is, uh, from Jeffrey powers in Madison, Wisconsin. And Jeffrey asks using lighting in the eyes is great, but could, uh, some start using CG to get to alter the look similar to movies where crew, uh, gets tracked out of sunglasses. Alex? Changing the lighting is hard. You can. You can do some changes and you can do some things there. Generally, when we're doing those interviews, we don't want to spend a ton of time in post. Interviews, because they're such long form and because you're working through them and you're cutting to those, you want to do as little post on them as possible. So, you want to capture almost everything in frame. Now, some people will use, um, you know, some people will use CG background so a lot of stuff when you see like DVD extras they're shooting in front of green screen and you'll notice that the keys are really bad and the the stuff doesn't look great and there's a lot of things that just aren't um, you know aren't that compelling about that and so one of the things that's important there is that you if you're going to shoot something in front of green screen you're going to want to Um, really get the lighting to look really great on the person, treat it like a regular lighting setup, but you have to measure everything. So you measure your camera position, you measure the focal length, you measure the focus distance, you measure all of those things so that if you build a CG background behind it, it can match all all the focal lengths, zoom settings, everything else so that, and focus settings, so that it blends in. Putting a flat background behind people all the all the behind the scenes for Fellowship of the Ring, not that I'm bitter, um, is not a great way to to have it um, to have it really feel compelling or feel like it's important. It just feels a little cheap. So um, and so the the main thing is is that you want to look at how do you do that. So that's where you can add CG, correcting people, changing their lighting is soup. It, it might cost the the cost of your entire documentary to do a couple clips. <laughs> so it's you're taking things out of sun is one thing. Taking relighting people is a is a pretty stiff thing to to approach. Let's go on to the next question. Next question is from Mark Giuliani uh, in Washington, D.C. And Mark asks when recording or streaming an interview on sets like Sunday morning talk shows, do you want to coach the guests to look at the host or the camera when answering questions?
0: That's a choice that you're going to make depending on how much engagement you want. You know, it's a it's a tradition for a long time that you had the interviewee slightly off camera and they looked across the frame. Uh, And then if you were cutting back to the interviewer, it was a matching angle. And so it applied that the two were talking to each other and you were looking on at that interview from a little to the side because of Zoom and because of what we're doing more and more of uh, what is happening is more direct into the camera. We're getting much more used to that these days. Alex, you wanted to make a comment?
1: Yeah, I think that Zoom is really kind of taking that over the shoulder shot and and it just feels very old now. Like the 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 cutting, the looking off camera to me feels like a very old cut. Um, so I tend to not do that anymore. Um, and I tend to give them a teleprompter. One thing that's interesting about folks that we learned, so, and, and I've probably, uh, since my business used to just be doing interviews, I've probably done a couple thousand uh, interviews um, in the last uh, 15 years. And probably less than a hundred have been uh, over uh, off camera. So like literally almost all of them have been, because once I got used to the telepromp, the, 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 um, once I got used to the Interatron style, which was long before COVID it was probably you know, 15 years ago, it's just really hard to go back. It's really hard to go back to someone looking o- off camera, it's still popular and established folks will do it. Um, but it's kind of, when I see it now, I feel like it's very old-fashioned, um, and so so that's that's kind of my my thought ab- around it. Um, but but that has changed over time. I mean, we did do it in the earlier days, but I find that looking straight at the camera now. Now the thing is, is if you just have them look at the, if you direct them to look at the camera, you'll get a you won't get a great performance. So if you don't have a teleprompter that you can do an intertron process, have them look at you, because the problem is, is that your your folk your facial expression affects the how they how they talk. There's people who you'll notice that there's some people who will you'll you'll tell everything to and some people you won't tell anything to. Like you'll some people you just kind of crumple up and you find, why do I always stutter and why do I always I don't say the right things and I'm, you know, I'm off, I feel off balance. And there's some people that you feel like you can tell your life story to it's because of how they're reacting to you while you're talking. And so, so the thing is, is that when they react, when they're nodding, when they're excited, when they're pulling it out, when they're, you know, when they're like sky, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, you just want to talk to them the whole time. Cause there's something that pulls you out of that thing when they're flat, when they're looking down at the notes for the next uh, question, when they're doing all these other things that, that puts you in a box and you feel like you just want to stop. And so that, that, Non-verbal communication between the interviewer and the interviewee is super important, and a lot of people take it for granted, and they don't get as good of interviews. Um, that's why if you're going to do direct to camera, you want to put, you do want to invest in the teleprompter. You have another teleprompter. You're looking at each eye to eye, and you'll even see their eyes converge differently um, when they when they see someone on the other side. And so it really makes a huge difference to if you don't don't direct someone to look into a camera unless there's unless they can see someone on the other side.
0: I agree with that a hundred percent. Those were uh, some of my deadly sins of uh,
1: getting out of the interview as the
0: interviewer and looking at your notes constantly rather than engaging with the person. Almost always the quality of the interview results you come up with has to do with engagement between you and the person you're talking to.
1: Yeah, to, to what you're saying there, it is so important for people to feel important you know, and, and, and if you, when they feel important, they'll talk more, they'll be more excited. They'll be like, I, I, I was, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but we have a director that I've used for a lot of interviews, uh, probably hundreds of interviews at this point. And the first thing he does, he walks in and he just go, and he, he, he walks in and he he goes, wow, you look so much better in real life than you did on the photos. You know, like that, that I got to, you know, to prep this, you know, you just, you look great. And he just starts that he starts that out. And at first I thought, wow, he's, he's you know, he really liked that person after a while and realized that's just what he does. Like that's 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 how he starts the thing. But he's super personal and he's super just kind of talking to them and making them feel you can just see he take he can take anybody and bolster them up so that they feel excited about it. it doesn't matter whether he agrees or disagrees with them or anything else. He's just building them all up and, and, and then they're going to say a lot more things. They're going to be more energetic. They're going to have more energy, you know, and, and you can cut that however you want later, but you want to, you, you know, and that's one of the problems is, and some people want to put people on a, make people feel uncomfortable. So they do that on purpose. But for most of the interviews we want, even if we don't agree with the person, we want them to be excited while they're talking. And so the key is the, is to kind of build, build that out.
0: Absolutely agree with that. And, and also just not to. Try to get too much into the interview. You know, one of the most powerful questions I ever asked in an interview, and I learned this from watching a trial on TV, is just the simple, what happened next? It's three words. That's all sometimes that you need in order to bring someone out and have them expand on something as opposed to, well, you said this and you said that and there's another thing. Right. And then let's, you know, so, it's just you can lose an interview because your question is too complex and takes them out of the moment right. rather than engaging with what they just said and, and having them expand on it.
1: And that's a great point. One of the things we we actually call it direct and cross when we do interviews. So a direct in the legal case is you can't lead anybody on. You just have to say what happened next and then what happened and then what, you know, and then and then you ask open ended did questions that don't lead the lead the witness across is isn't it true that you did this? Isn't it true that you did that? And that's the that's the second person that comes on to interview the the, the witness. And we we try to instruct people who are doing the interviews to think of that as a possible. At first, ask them open-ended questions to just have them explain things. Say at ah, the question should be short, it should be open-ended, it should let them just roam around and and you're, you're just gathering information. Oftentimes for a corporate event, we need them to say certain things. So then at the end, we get them, well, can you talk about this in more detail? Can you say that slightly differently? Can you do so? We'll dig in and try to get the things that, you know, somebody wants in corporate to, for them to come out. There's words they want them to come out of their mouth. And you got to get as close as you can to that, but do not ever do that at the beginning. You will destroy your interview. So, what you need to do is at the very beginning is you just have the open ended questions that just gather the information that, that lets them, that's going to be all the stuff you use. And then they'll be like, Two seconds, three seconds here and there that you use of the other stuff because it's not, it's never very good.
0: Let's go on to the next question.
1: Next question is from Jeffrey Powers um, in um uh Madison, Wisconsin. And Jeffrey asks, thoughts on shaky video interview cameras, especially those that are added to the shot afterwards.
0: Yes, we all laughed about that as the MTV style back in 20 years ago, they started doing that, where instead of being on tripods, they wanted the energy, the youthfulness of a camera moving around all the time. A good camera person can pull that off and have it be a combination of not looking locked down and static, but still keeping in frame what is important and a little bit of action kind of creates a more sense of you are there and moving around a little bit. I think they're both, uh, you know, I'd never say no to any style. The question is,
1: does the person doing it, can they do it effectively? Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, there's a couple things to that. Uh, one thing around that is that number one, if you're not, I, I hate adding it later if I don't have, like it's really a bummer to add that later. Remember that you have to add motion blur back to it. So if you're going to start doing a uh, post uh, camera shake, there was motion blur there and you're going to need to recalculate that um, to really do it properly. Otherwise it looks weird. Um, the other thing is, is that the best way to add camera shake is to take a target about 20 feet away, zoom in on it with a re- real camera and uh, and then just capture some footage. You can't, you can't keep it still. You know, at 20, 30 feet, zoomed all the way in, it'll it'll move, but it'll move organically. What it's take, what you're calculate, what you're capturing when you do that, um, is that you're capturing the linkages between your hand and your and your elbow and the and your shoulder. You're you're capturing your breathing. You're capturing all kinds of things that are human, and you'll get this little bit of just movement. You take that, you track it, you apply that foot that track back to your footage, and it'll look much more organic. Than just taking the center point and animating it around, um, and uh, and so, um, it's it's a much better way to kind of grab that organic feel, um, and uh, so anyway, so I I would, uh, but I I would try to avoid it as much as you can. I feel like you're working too hard when you start adding camera shake back, you know, back to the system. But remember that if you do add camera shake, use something that's going to capture an organic camera shake, and then the second thing is to make sure that you um, add that motion blur um, to make it kind of you know blend back into the system.
0: And often these days we're blessed in that we can get a hold of things like these little Osmos and other gimbal things that'll allow you to get kind of a handheld look and still a relatively stable shot that doesn't look like it's really jerking. So, you know, shaky cam at one point was really, truly active. The middle ground is these gimbals that allow you to feel organic and in motion without uh, Mm -hmm. a lock off shot. And the lock off is the third piece. And, you know, don't, dismiss any of them. You were looking at those Errol Morris interviews and things like that. Those were lockdown shots, but they're still brilliant. You can do all of them really well, and you can do all of them really poorly. Next question.
1: Uh, Next question is from James Brooke. And James asks, what do you think uh, of the interview trend in TV interviews that occasionally cut to the very wide scene that show the cameras and the lighting setups? Uh, BTS
0: shots. Alex?
1: I like it. (laughs) I think it's cool. I mean, definitely as someone who does interviews, I love it. I like, I like, oh, that's, I see what they did there. And you can learn a lot from those. And so, so I think that it's a, I think it's, I, I enjoy it. I think that you know, pulling that back a little bit is is a great way to do it. You just have to shoot it well, you know, make sure that you're planning it. It's not someone's just like behind the scenes shot. But a lot of people now do those BTSs. They're very valuable also for web content. So what you do is you maybe only put a hair of that into a real one, but you tell people to see more, you can see the web and then the web, you show a ton of it. And it gives you a different view of the same thing, which adds value to that content on multiple platforms. It's just amazing to me. When I first started out, I remember
0: it was probably 15, maybe 20 years ago, the first time a senior vice president at a corporation looked at me and says, when are you going to shoot the B-roll? Why do you even know that term? Because it wasn't common 20 years ago. Today, almost everybody, because they've become much more media literate, understands this process. And so uh, behind the scenes, I think, is really satisfying for an audience because everybody feels like they're a little bit part of it. They they know how the how the soup's being made.
1: Next question. Next question is from JJ McKenna uh, in San Rafael, California. And JJ asks, where could one place a webcam like a Logitech Brio or the Insta360 to get the short depth of field? Alex, your thoughts? In a really, really, really large space. (laughs) So there is, it's still a half inch chip. Eventually things will go out of focus. I mean, it doesn't keep everything in focus. So if you put it on one side of a a big stage, let's say, and you put put the person there and they're really close to you and there's nothing behind you. uh, But if you get 20 or 30 feet, you're going to get something that looks nice and out of focus if you don't have anything in the foreground. So you can do it with any camera. Uh, It's just a matter of um, just how far you have to go to get there.
0: Yeah. And also the aperture is going to determine some things about depth of field. So if it's even if it's got an automatic one, if you can shoot in less light, open the aperture up, aperture up you will get less depth of field. It's really hard to do outside on a, in a baseball stadium or something like that. You've got the iris as closed down as possible. You're going to have the maximum amount of depth of field and you may not be possible to do it at all.
1: Next question. Next question is from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts, and Craig asks: When doing a remote interview, when is it worth the trouble to use more than a single camera, such as an Intertron camera, uh, to and a wide established camera? Alex, we rarely do that. <laughs> so, so we rarely, when we're doing a remote interview, we're going to le- usually lean on. Uh, B roll, so so some kind of B roll, other things that they've done, other things they're working on. The reason for that is that generally it overwhelms the person that you're sending it to. Now, if you have a if you have a team to do it, we shoot them all the time. So we if we have a team for a remote interview, and I'm sending one or two people to that person's house, I'm doing a setup. I will always set up that second camera to to grab onto that. um, If I have someone to manage it, but when if I'm sending it to an individual who is not a video professional, who has to get this all set up. It's bad enough that I have to set up the first camera, let alone the second camera. They'll run out of energy and then just be frustrated. So um, so if you have a team there to, to do the remote interview, and we've done more and more of this, where you're sending a team out, they get it all set up, and then the, the interviewer is somewhere in the world talking to them. And it's really changed. You know, for a while... We had clients who really wanted to travel, so they wanted to go to all the interviews. But over time, the travel, the, the 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 excitement of the travel wore off, and they started just saying, "Can can we just set up Zoom or Skype or whatever, you know, so they they can just sit in their office and uh, inter- do all the interviews for people?" And it's it's a really great way to do it. Next question. Next question is from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris asks, facial hair to me can be tricky to light. What's your rule of thumb for bushy facial hair to minimize shadows, large diffusers, or small direct facing spots? Alex? Large diffusers. <laughs> for, for facial hair, large diffusers, fill, that's, that's what's going to make all of that generally work a lot better. In general, when in doubt on an interview, large sources are your friend. Amen to that. Next question. Next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. And Gordon asks, when shooting multiple interviews in, in different locations for the same show, should you attempt to keep the lighting theme the same for each um, or light for what looks best in each location?
0: Again, another judgment call. Are you trying to get everybody in? Uh, you know, I've shot for things like PowerPoint presentations where I knew people were going to be on one side. I was going to be using half the shot. And I want those to be similar person to person, understanding that I'm going to cut away from and back to them as support for other content. I've also done exactly the opposite. I shoot shot half my interviewees looking right and half my interviewees looking left so I can vary the presentation in the design of the presentation for the audience. You really do have to break down each thing and decide where are you going with this interview? What are you trying to do? Is visual variety more important to you in this particular use case, or is it less important? And consistency will let people concentrate on the complex diagram on the right of the screen and just have the person there as the expert describing that complexity. Alex, your thoughts?
1: Yeah. If we look at this again, here's here's a, here's exactly what you're asking about. So we have you're seeing with each one of them, the framing is, there is a look, there is a warm look that they're using for all of these. So there is a feel to them, but every frame is depending on what they wanna show behind it. But, but you'll notice that there's kind of, there is a color palette that they're using behind every person. Um, in a, and there is a general rule of you know these large sources, but which side, how close, what they're doing is all. And I will say, just to go back to this, to me, this, the that, uh, lighting Magic, beyond being just a really great documentary, is a master course in interview lighting and interview setup and interview framing. It's the, the best I've I've ever seen. Next question. Uh, next question is from JJ McKenna in uh, San Rafael, California. And JJ asks, when Alex is wearing glasses, his eyes are still well lit. Uh, where are the lights placed uh, to prevent shadows? Ah, lighting glasses, Alex. I don't have one right now. So yeah, I, I know I throw, I throw it here. I can, I can, I can, hold on. I can, I can, they're missing an arm. So my, my glasses broke that if you're wondering why I don't have glasses on is they, the little arm broke. So, they're, so, but if you see them here, um, the, uh, the, the, Uh, I have it at about a 45 degree angle up and it literally how I figured that out for my glasses is the way you have to figure it out for interviews. It's angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. So it's just a simple problem. I have a light here and I have a person here and I have a camera here. You know, basically I want to, um, you know, I have to figure out where does that light hit the glasses that's going to go off of that that you know that's going to go into that frame and i just keep moving the light up until that angle of reflection just barely misses the uh misses the lens and so you're just moving it until it disappears but it really is you just it's just a simple it's a very simple math that it's always going to come out and you can kind of look at something and go well my camera's here and the light has to be and you can kind of get within a couple degrees without even looking at it and then when the person sits down then you start playing around with it the other things Big sources help because the other problem you have is that when you start lifting that up, some people with with protruded um with you know, you'll be fixing the glasses and then suddenly their eyes drop into shadow. And so that's why really large sources help you and then you just get it out of out of out of range, but you still can keep most of the face.
0: And for those of you who didn't misspend your youth in pool halls or billiard parlors, angle instance of angle reflection is a good way to describe how a pool ball hits a, a, a rail and comes off of it. So Mostly that'll like. help you. There's, there's a reason that you can spend deduct some of your time
1: in the pool hall. You're studying yeah. lighting physics. <laughs> right. Next question. Next question uh, is from Jeffrey um, Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Thoughts on interviews where the company logo is framed in the shot, making the interviewee small and insignificant?
0: Well, you never want to make your interviewee look small and insignificant, though, although I have had a ton of uh decision makers from there saying can we get our logo any larger and things like that i will say it is a bit of a risk if it's if it's an interview for the short run but i've also had interviews that were supposed to be for fundamental videos that were going to last the company five or ten years and then sure enough they changed the logo and all of the things where that is a primary factor in the shot become obsolete so
1: it's a little dangerous alex yeah the i will admit that i hate framing any frames that take into account the background that much other than if it's like a a great scene but if you're trying to keep a logo in if you're trying to keep the the sign on the front of the podium if you're doing all those things you oftentimes undermine the the feel of it and i think you're absolutely right jeffrey that it makes the person feel small and less insignificant or less important um, because you got all this other stuff around them that you're trying to kind of build up. And so I I wanna frame that person so that they look great, they're framed great the way I want, and then I build the frame around them. And if we need to put the logo in there, we can, we've definitely done that. Usually when people start talking about logos, I really wanna do a green screen because then I can just stick the logo wherever I want later Um, and and, and kind of frame it just the way I want it. Um. So that's one thing to think about. I also love using CG ahead of, you know, a little little lower third, like, hey, we can put it in, we can put it in later as a bug or fly something in there. And so that we don't have to spend as much time dealing with it uh, on set. I, I think it's a, I don't think it's great, but there are definitely reasons you do it. Uh, like a, a slightly wider shot for a politician, you may want to have a, a QR code or a, or a logo or something on either side of them. Um, but I would, you know, recommend you know getting that kind of more math build the shot around the person first and then figure out where you're gonna put the graphics
0: it's getting a little easier as we get more and more resolution
1: because you can do some limited punch yeah, in but, so you can the hard part is is that you have to take into account that people are watching on their phone I so understand. you can yeah. you can do that but you have to think about if you can't read it at three 640 by 360 you probably shouldn't put it in there
0: point well taken next
1: question uh, next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks: When shooting an interview with user-generated questions sourced from a platform like Micana, uh, for example, how would you feed the questions into the teleprompter display? Alex, there's actually a teleprompter display in Mukana. <laughs> you don't see it very often as users, but I, I um, you know, we use it all the time, and so uh, we can uh, uh, we can change the not only. We can flip the text in in the browser. We can scale it up and scale it, scale the questions down. We can do a lot. We have a lot of control over what, what it looks like in the teleprompter. And so, yeah, there's a teleprompter view that we use. So that's how we drive those into it. Typically, though, we still want someone to read it to an interviewee, as opposed to having them try to read the question off of the teleprompter. But if we're doing it where the interviewer might be in front of that teleprompter, throwing those up and keying those in um, is is pretty effective. Next question. Next question is from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. And Jeffrey asks, are there any rules of thumb when using a slider, uh, vertical, horizontal, or at an angle? Um, Alex. Most of the sliders uh, are horizontal. You're going to move them back and forth horizontal. One thing to remember is that uh, you're, you're moving them back and forth. Uh, one thing that you want to remember is that as you move that, they can move in and out of focus. So if you're not having a camera operator doing it, uh, or if you're not having a good camera operator do it, remember that, that that oftentimes has to be kind of at a semi-circle. So it's it's kind of a curved uh, piece otherwise, because then you can get the focus and that person stays in focus. There's a, there is a, uh, uh, Red Rock uh, makes a piece called the One Man Crew, and a lot of times we use that as a, um, for a lot of our interviews in the past, we use that as a, a second camera and it just bounces back and forth. But what it would do is it would give us a little bit of motion and it st- everybody stays in focus if you get it at the right distance. You, you kind of have to figure the distance out so that it's you know basically at the point where it needs to be in that curve. So it's about, I think it's about six feet or something like that from the person. And then it just bounces back and forth. So you had that second shot with it kind of moving um, there. and. A lot of times we use that shot, we would have that going back and forth, we'd still have a second camera operator capturing close ups, capturing their hands, capturing other things like that. But what it freed them up to do is have that camera bouncing back and forth, be able to go more aggressive with the, the pickup shots, and then still have your master shot. Um, so cameras are you know, generally less expensive. So being able to put more of them in doing something is a, is a great way to add value without adding a lot of costs. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And uh, Douglas asks, what special considerations are needed for video depositions for court cases over traditional interviews?
0: Well, that's a very formal way to do interviews. And you've got all sorts of restrictions and any kind of legal proceeding. The judge is going to control how things can be done. There are certain standards you have to follow Uh, You you know, people who specialize in legal videography really have taken extra training to make sure that they understand not just the requirements of the law, but courtroom uh, decorum, courtroom etiquette. You have to understand who can speak and who can't speak and when and what's next and how things flow. It is a very structured system because it needs
1: to be fair and consistent for everybody
0: who encounters that system. Alex, you want to?
1: Yeah, you have to be careful. Like in courtroom, it's funny, you, you want to make it look prettier, but making it prettier usually gets a lot more objections. And so what you want to be careful of is you we want to do a basic camera and you're locking it off typically. You're you're gathering that information, um, but you wanna be careful of trying to push it too far um, because the it it everything that you do to add quality or like a short depth of the field, it's a good example, those kinds of things. Can all open it up for the uh, the opposing side that doesn't want to have it there? Saying, "Well, they framed it in a certain way that that is not you know, or or anything that's you know, uh, dramatic lighting. Do it, you know, all those things you have to take into account. You want it to be as flat and as basic as possible, um, and and you need to make you need to be able to hear it and see it real well. But you have to be care- very careful of making it artistic because artistic will open you up to all kinds of challenges.
0: Um, we are. Down to a last couple yep. of questions here. So if you have additional questions, that'd be great. If not, maybe I'll go back through my, my four sins things and we'll talk about those a little bit. Maybe they'll generate a few more questions. We're getting close to the end though here. Um, let's go to one more question.
1: Uh, last question, for, well, possibly the last question is from uh, Jeffrey Powers. Can Philippe Baez, Baez um, talk about coloring interviews? Is there a style guide different um, from making a show or a movie?
2: Felipe? Well, I, I think that really depends. Uh, if we're talking about, for example, a documentary or a documentary series, or if we're talking about commercials, right? Or, or just corporate. There are three things normally that I see happening very frequently, including in my projects is time, money and audience. So... Time and money will dictate a lot of how everything is going to be done, including if that color grading will happen within the NLE in which it was edited or if it's going to be turned over to to, uh, to a colorist on a separate system because that's makes it more complicated you have turnovers that you have at that point and that costs a lot of money and then the audience obviously uh, what are the feelings you want to evoke from that audience because this may educate if you, uh, the creative style of your of your interview if you're going to go from naturalistic to filmic for example but i am not a colorist so this is just from the producing and editing point of view that i have
0: nice all right uh Let me run through these real quick and see if that they generate a few more questions. These, When I was thinking about this, I really do think, and I've developed this through the the two or 300 interviews I've done live, uh, my four sins of uh, things that you don't. The first is the lack of preparation. If you don't understand the topic, if you don't know the subject, if you don't know your goal, what you're trying to get accomplished in the interview, and if you don't know any limits that you're supposed to have. And uh, they come up occasionally when somebody says, you know, please don't ask me about this. It will shut down an interview if you make a mistake and go into an area that you really shouldn't have. It'll take your subject entirely out of things. My second sin, sin, as we talked about this, is asking compound or complex questions. And boy, I had trouble with this when I was learning how to interview. That clear, simple question that lets them ask, uh, lets them answer, and that guides them. um, You know what happened next? Why did that help? Why do you think that didn't work well? Those really do engage an, an interviewee and help them as opposed to the I've got three sentences to frame my question. And We see that a lot, by the way, in some of the news shows, and they're, they're, it drives me nuts when they have four questions held up there. Interviews are often stressed, and adding too much information really stresses them more. So simplify whenever you can. The third sin that I think is making it all about you, thinking that your clever question is as important as the interview, it is never um, I believe in empathy over inquisition. Uh, I, I hate showboating um, and I've discovered over the course of time that truly respect builds rapport between you and an interviewee. So if you show them that you are there to help them look their best, that goes a long way in settling an interviewee down and getting a really good, useful conversation. And you know, it's the fourth on my list, but it's probably number one an important failure to listen during your interview. If your next question is less important than the subject's current answer virtually always. And I try to keep that in mind whenever I'm doing an interview. Uh, Interviewees are living, flexible people. These are living, flexible discussions to be guided, and they are not a timed test. I've got 10 questions that I developed for this interviewee. I'm going to get through all 10 of them, regardless of what they say is probably the worst possible way to approach getting your list of questions together for an interview. We have a question or two that have come in since then. So Alex, next question.
1: Next question is uh, from Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts. Beyond the ILM doc, what is a good source for learning more?
2: Uh, Felipe has a thought. So does Alex, Felipe. I personally love this style from Masterclass. Masterclass has very nice shots there with their uh, teachers.
1: And the thing you know is Masterclass four walls, almost everything. So they they basically, they build sets. So that they're never, the thing about Masterclass that you should know is that when you watch them, that is never someone's house or their kitchen or their whatever. They're building a set um and they are you know to exactly everything you see there is a set and it's a almost everything not everything but almost everything no matter how real it looks was generally built in a sound stage and um and that lets them have immense control over the lighting uh, over the framing um you know it's because it's all designed around that and i do agree with felipe it's it is a masterclass on 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 framing and shooting uh, especially you know those those types of things yeah you know. Next Excellent. question. Oh, I'm sorry, Alex. Yeah, that's yours. So next question. Next question is from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and Jeffrey asks, interview, influential interviews you review when you prepare for an interview gig. Alex, what do you go to? I will say that I kind of prepare all the time. You know, so if I'm going there, um, I will be constantly, I'm con- every time I see an interview and I go, oh, that was uh, really nice. You know i keep track of it that's why i was able to grab all these interviews <laughs> that i liked because they're all they're all kind of sitting around on my hard drive maybe not all edited together but i keep a lot of them um around to to look at things and so um, i'm thinking about it all the time anytime I, I anytime something pops out to me in an interview that i go oh i really like that or i really don't like that i at least take mental note of it and so i'm kind of working on it all the time um to make that to make you know to to get better at it the other thing i will say is that i I hire great DPs. <laughs> so, so when I do it, uh, usually the people that I work with, whether it's Brent By or my brother or uh, a couple other folks, um, I I uh, I hire people that are really good at this. And so I'm only making fine adjustments to someone who really knows what they're doing. Uh, let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from um, Michael Smith in Silverado, California. And uh, in, in Michael asks, has anyone seen Babylon? It shows a transition from silent to talkies. I've heard about it. I have not yet got a chance to see it, and I it'd be interesting to go back and see their take
0: on those days when sound was coming in and everything changed. We've heard a lot of stories about actors who were really huge in the silent era, and they just couldn't make the change to talkies for any one of a number of things. Uh, so it it changed the paradigm. It'll be interesting. I haven't seen it yet, so uh, but I'm looking forward to someday watching it. Next question.
1: Our next question is from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. And Eric asks Is it worth pursuing reluctant interviewees or do they usually result in a bad show? Alex? Definitely not always. Um, sometimes it's hard to get a hold of people. They don't do it very often. And if you can, uh, you just have to be a really good interviewer. So it's, it. you know, I think that the, the issue to get a good show out of it has, if you can get into the house or into the building or get them to come meet you somewhere, oftentimes you can actually get a great interview out of them. But it really is, that's where the true skill of a great interviewer that's going to make them feel comfortable. Now, the other thing to remember is one thing that we think a lot about is when you're building that interview, we didn't really talk as much about it. You're building a cocoon for that experience, for that, for that process. And you really want to be, you know, th- things looking all kind of cobbled together and wires hanging everywhere and everything else it makes your interviewee feel uncomfortable. And when they feel uncomfortable, they get bad interviews. And so the place where they get to sit, the place where they're going to change, the place where you do hair and makeup, the, the, the things that you do, all, all of those things matter. They don't. They're not just something that you know. You can kind of work it out. And people, when they get started, they start to work that out. But how you end up doing really high end interviews is you get really good at all of those little creature comforts: the temperature of the room, the kind of food that they, you know you want to ask them ahead of time if they're if they're if you can get them to show up. What kind of food do they want? What do they want? A water? Do they want Coke? Do they want a? Um, do they want a coffee? Do, what, what, how do they have their tea? How do they do those things? Is there any snacks that they would like to have? These are all things that you want to kind of try to pull together if you're really doing a high-end interview um, because it makes a huge difference in how they feel. And then when they feel more comfortable and then you have a great person in front of them, uh, it, it definitely improves the quality of the event.
0: Thank you all, one and all. We really appreciate this. Don't forget tomorrow, Altheon.io, it's just kind of a service like Frame.io, but uh, they do cloud content management portals. We'll be talking to Matt Samaglia of uh, that Saturday, the class reunion, three-year anniversary of being here on Office Hours to help you. So we're looking forward to that Sunday, of course, introspection. Um, there's a few things on the schedule. The panelist meeting will be happening in the next couple of days. So if you're interested in that and want to be part of the panel, please, do, and in fact, our thanks to the panelists, everybody who showed up here to help us put the show on. We could not do the show without these brilliant panelists that we bring in every day. Also, the the behind-the-scenes crew, which is amazing, Uh, and watch the credits roll at the end of this, and you'll see all the names of the people who are helping us. And, of course, you for asking questions and being a part of this. Remember that After Hours is always open for your questions or comments 24-7. We've got a lot of things coming up on the office hours schedule. Our NAB coverage is something we're really looking forward to. And if you want to be more involved in that, there is a way to find out. Just go to the website and you'll see uh, pieces of how to get involved in that. All of these things are part of the Office Hours family, and we appreciate your time every day when you come here to Office Hours and help us make this a part of uh, a process where we're really trying to pass on as much useful information as we can to everybody. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. So thanks for watching. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.
5: Is it a MacBook Pro? It is. I've noticed that the fan blades have gotten so close together that you just have to open up the case every once in a while and blow them out.
0: Yeah, you know, Mickey suggested I do that for some reason. I took the screws out. But I didn't feel like prying it off. I didn't think I knew enough about how to get the bottom of the case off. I mean, I have to go to i.